Welcome to The Patient Podcast, a series of conversations with innovators, HR leaders, and benefit advisors about how they're solving benefit challenges and building healthier communities by helping people access and afford healthcare. Hi there, I'm Laura Cave, and today I'm joined by our VP of Product Strategy, J.R. Clark. Hi, J.R. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me today. So today we're going to be talking about the ongoing squeeze that employers are confronting as they're trying to attract talent and manage costs in this challenging labor market against some pretty serious economic headwinds. Today's guest is Dan Bernstein, and I'm so glad he's here to help us unpack these challenges with some strategies for how employers can navigate in this environment. Dan has more than three decades of experience in the health and benefits space most recently serving as a partner at Mercer in the San Francisco office. And in particular, I'm excited for Dan to shine a light on how employers and their benefit consultants can be thinking about navigating issues like rising inflation, supply chain constraints, burnout and turnover, and various other macroeconomic challenges. So JR, to kick us off, I wondered if you could just set the stage a little bit with some context on how inflation and some of these other trends are making this year a much more challenging time for employers. Yeah, sounds good, Laura. So I'll focus heavily on employer benefits because it's what I know. So like food and gasoline, inflation hits the medical field as well. And as a consequence of that, you know, hospitals have to raise their prices just like grocery stores do. And when hospitals raise their prices by, say, 10% year over year, that can actually cause health insurance premiums for employers to increase by more than that 10%, maybe 12 to 15% due to something called deductible leveraging. So accordingly, as employers have to make tough decisions about the benefits they offer to their own employees, you know, they're thinking about these increases and they have to respond to that squeeze of the healthcare cost increase. And in a lot of cases, the most apparent path is to increase the health plan deductibles or co-pays or co-insurance, which oftentimes puts more out-of-pocket cost burden on their employees. So at the same time, employees in this environment have less room in their budget for healthcare costs because they're paying more for essentials like food or housing or transportation due to the inflation. So they tend to defer or delay the care that they get in the health space. And uh, a recent study I saw said that 26% of people earning between $48,000 and $90,000 per year had skipped or delayed care in the prior six months due to the rising cost of healthcare. So a pretty big deal. Yeah. And, you know, as employees defer care, particularly related to prescriptions or diagnostics or specialist care, it can really have a meaningful impact on their health outcomes, which then, you know, furthers the cycle of rising employer costs. Right. And and as an actuary, you know exactly what's happening in that risk model and how those prices go up when you start to see these kinds of, of issues going on in, in the actual health of the employee population. So that's really, really helpful perspective. So Dan is here and ready to talk to us about these topics and more. So I want to get us started. Before we really dive in, let me give you some more background on Dan. Dan recently retired as a partner in the health and benefits business of Mercer's San Francisco office. Over 30 plus years, he worked with employers in a wide range of industries, including retail, financial services, high tech, consumer products, education, and the public sector. Dan's expertise covers strategic planning and execution, healthcare delivery innovation, 
wellness, total health management, global mental health, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. In retirement, he continues to advise a number of Silicon Valley employers on the best ways to provide innovative benefits to their employees. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the Patient Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Of course. So you've heard us chatting a little bit about the challenges that employers are feeling at the moment. Could you share a little bit of your perspective on these trends and what you've been observing in the market? Sure. I mean, I think, and, you know, uh, JR alluded to it, right? We sort of start with the broader macroeconomic trend, right? I mean, we've all known for years that employers have sort of struggled with this conflict between offering a generous, competitive, compelling benefit package and the cost issue, right? How, how do we make that affordable? But the difference is sort of the world that we find ourselves in now. I mean, it, it certainly is one thing when, you know, the economy is humming along and inflation is low and interest rates are low and, and we see growth. But if we just take a step back, right, and think about all the challenges that we're facing today, the sort of the confluence of events that we're facing today that we haven't faced before. So, um, you know, depending on, you know, who you talk to, we're still sort of in the midst or on the tail end of COVID, right? A major pandemic that we hadn't seen before. The war in Ukraine certainly rages on. We have significant disruption in, in the supply chain. We have, the, as JR alluded to, the largest inflationary environment we've seen since, you know, uh, you know for those of us who are old enough, like the 1970s, right? Um, in response to inflation, the Fed keeps raising rates, which is, you know, tightening up uh, supply to needed capital. Um, and depending on whatever your definition is, we're either in a recession or we're in re a recessionary environment. And yet, despite all of these things, we have an extremely tight labor market, right? So that that is a, a unique set of circumstances that we haven't seen ourselves in before. And it filters certainly down to uh, the, the benefit arena and employers are going to have to think more strategically, more thoughtfully about the universe of solutions that are available to them. A lot of which has to be uh, very data driven and um, thoughtful with respect to, to measurement um, methodologies um, to, to put forward a set of solutions and a set of differentiators in their benefit program that are going to be able to manage these different challenges. Dan, so that's great. And kind of a couple other questions. You know, a lot of your work over the years has been with companies in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And I think in general, the outside perspective of high tech companies like an Apple or a Google is really that their place is filled with really high earners who probably have also incredibly generous benefits. So first of all, would you say that those assumptions assumptions are correct? Um, really great question. I would say yes and no, right? So let's start with the generous benefits part. I think by and large, when we look at the tech industry, particularly when we look in sort of what we would call emerging tech, right? Those tech companies that have been around for 10 years or less. If you look at actuarial value, right? Which I know, JR, you're familiar with, but it's really a fancy word for benefit richness. So when we look at the actuarial value of the benefit programs for the tech employers, they're going to be a little bit richer than employers in other industries. Where I, I would say some of these assumptions are incorrect is when we think of high-tech employers as being a space for highly compensated individuals or just highly compensated, for example, engineers. That hasn't been the case for 
for a while, for quite some time. And, and so why is that? And a lot of that's due to the fact that most of these businesses have branched out into other areas. So classic example would be Apple, right? Traditionally, we've always thought of Apple in terms of Apple computers and Apple iPhones, but you need look no farther down the road, you know, 10 miles from where I live, and you're going to find an Apple retail store filled with very helpful Apple retail em- employees who wouldn't fall into that definition of highly compensated uh, individuals and who have unique challenges in, in their benefit decisions. Amazon is another, right, really good example. Amazon is part tech company, but they're really a warehouse fulfillment center. PayPal is part tech company, part financial institution, but they've got call centers in Nebraska and administrative people in Utah and in Arizona and these other places. And that's a very different sort of bifurcated workforce, right? There is certainly an element of the young engineer working in Silicon Valley, but there are these other employees in these different locations with very different jobs, very different lifestyles, very different circumstances, and their needs are going to be very different as well. That's interesting. So when you think about that, obviously a bifurcated workforce brings its own unique challenges. Are there other unique challenges that companies in Silicon Valley are dealing with at the moment? And I guess a kind of a follow-up to that would be also like of those unique challenges, are there things that translate into employers outside of Silicon Valley? Correct. And I I think... um you know, a a lot of companies are facing the challenges of working with different employees in different locations, trying to make sure that they create better health outcomes, cost mitigation, member satisfaction amongst all these different groups. I think the big differentiator right now from a cost perspective is, you know, what has come out of COVID, right? What has come out of that specific pandemic. So I'll I'll give you an example, sort of a story. Um, a few years ago when I was still with Mercer and COVID first hit, and we were all sort of spinning our heads, um, trying to get our arms around it. And our clients came to us and they said, you know, what do you think this is going to cost? And I went back to our actuarial team and they came back to me and they said, it could be anywhere from a negative cost impact to doubling your costs. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, yeah, well, exactly right. So they came (laughs) back and they're, and they're, they're rolling their eyes and saying, thanks, that's, that's really helpful. But in defense of our actuaries, you know, their response was, well, you know, we've never really been through this before. <laughs> we don't have a lot Fair. of historical data on, on major worldwide pandemics and, and major worldwide catastrophes. So now fast forward two and a half years later, and we know what's happened, right? There, certainly there have been some costs driven by the catastrophic cases uh, that resulted from COVID. And, and, and I don't want to minimize that, but by and large costs decreased. How could that be? How could costs decrease in the midst of a major pandemic? Well, the reality of it is people stayed home. People didn't get the care that at the time they otherwise would have had taken care of. So, you know, I'm I'm a perfect example. I had a sore shoulder. I had a pinched nerve. There was no real place for me to go to a doctor's office to have that taken care of. Two and a half years down the line, it hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. And now I'm seeking care and it's more expensive than ever. So we have this phenomenon of pent-up demand. Costs went down. People weren't going to see the doctor. But now, as we reach the tail end of this pandemic, people are going to go see the doctor and they're going to see the doctor at much greater rates, which obviously impacts utilization. And um, 
From an actuarial perspective, you'll appreciate the fact that I typically try and simplify the cost picture to say that cost is basically unit cost times utilization, right? I mean, there's, there's some administrative fees that are built in there, but at the end of the day, when you're really looking at it, it's unit cost times, times utilization. Well, what's happened to unit costs? We've seen a tremendous amount of provider consolidation, both from, from vertical integration and horizontal integration. That has had the impact on the supply side of driving unit cost up. And on the utilization side, this pent-up demand, all these people like myself who are starting to go see the doctor who didn't go see the doctor before is creating even greater cost pressures. So now you're somebody who's, let's say, a, a director of benefits or a head of total rewards for, for a large company, you've been reporting back to your finance group over the past couple of years, maybe a 2% increase or a 4% increase, which in the benefits world is good news. And that's coming back. And now it's a 14% increase or a 15% increase. And we know, right, senior executives in finance tend not to remember <laughs> what happened in the last f- fiscal quarter. They're concerned about what they're looking at going forward. And that that presents very challenging circumstances for people in the be- in the benefits world. Yeah, that leads really nicely, actually, into to the question that I was going to ask you. You know, so rising costs have been sort of part of the game. Like you said, you know, two to four percent increases is normal. So now we're having these these much larger, materially larger increases. We've got inflation. We've got this pent up demand for care. Do you think that this is hitting a breaking point in terms of coping with rising costs? I think there's a lot of stress and pressure on a lot of people. It would be one thing if the labor market wasn't as tight as it was. It would be one thing if the need for talent uh, attraction retention was waning to some degree, and maybe for some businesses it is. But overall, people still need good, smart people that they need to compete for, for talent. And how do you do that in an environment where you certainly don't want to continue to do continue with the strategies that we've relied on year in and year out, higher co-pays, higher deductibles, um, higher out-of-pocket maxes. That's the part that I think really starts to hit a breaking point, right? When people, right. you know, employees, regardless of where they are in the organization, they're facing inflation, they're facing their own economic issues. And on top of all of that, you know, to have an employer say, yeah, once again, we're going to increase your deductibles, your co-pays, your co-insurance or whatever, um, you know, people are, people are starting to feel very um, disengaged from their benefit programs and that presents a real problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, to the extent that I've alluded to it earlier on, the need for smart solutions, thoughtful solutions, um, data analytics, um, looking very specifically at what items are driving costs in a given population and addressing those issues in thoughtful, strategic manners, those things become more important than ever. Yeah, absolutely. And I th- when I think about all this, Dan, it's it's kind of like if you are an, an HR leader or you're an employer, you really need to be looking at like what you can do to better manage care, right? And when I say managed care, that is through things like saying, for my employees, if I'm an employer, I want them to be healthy, number one. But number two, when they get care, to get very good care, very optimized care, like the right care at the right place, right time, the phrase that we typically hear in this space. 
Do you have any specific ways that you would recommend with all of your experience and knowledge and expertise in this that like anything you could recommend that employers or HR leaders can specifically do? Uh, You know, I, I think very specifically when you look at your population as an employer, and in some cases it may be a uniform population, but as we indicated for a lot of high tech employers, it's, it's highly bifurcated. Look at the segments of your population, look at the cost drivers, look at the things that are leading to um, health outcomes that are undesirable health outcomes. And think through the various solutions that exist in the marketplace that may be seen as an investment that you can monitor, first of all, procure, right? Monitor, track, guarantee, report back on, and adjust, right, as you go along. No strategy is just universal throughout any given time period. You have to adjust your strategy as you move forward. So there's some obvious things, right? So, you know, specialty drugs, right? That's obviously driving a lot of this. You have to have a very thoughtful strategy around site of care optimization and transparency and drug utilization. Um, But you also have to think about the way your employees are consuming healthcare, the providers that they're seeing, implementing value-based strategies, advancing primary care physician first-based models, like driving them to the right provider in a primary care physician setting first and foremost, and then being thoughtful about those issues and those conditions that are most apt to impact the AAA, right? And AAA is somewhat, it's a concept that's been around for a while, but when we think about it, right, we think about cost mitigation, but beyond that, better health outcomes that are measurable from, you know, whether it's medication adherence or hospital readmissions or bed days per thousand or um, admits per thousand or generic drug utilization, whatever it is, there's a series of metrics that you can look at and you can implement solutions that are going to impact those and then measure those solutions on on a go forward basis. Member satisfaction, very important piece of the puzzle because that's going to impact your employee satisfaction, your employee turnover, important in a tight labor market. Uh, The more satisfied employees are with a particular program, the more engagement you're going to get, the more utilization you're going to get, which is also a key metric that you want to follow. And developing a strategy for determining what return on investment is going to look like and then following up on those metrics on a frequent basis. In many cases, that's going to be on a quarterly basis and making adjustments as necessary. That's really interesting. I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot going around in the marketplace right now. And and um, I apologize, this is a little little bit of a pop-up question, but there's a lot going on um, that seems very trendy in the benefits space, maybe coming out of the pandemic and um, certain needs were really highlighted during that time. And I'm wondering if there is anything that you see a lot of employers focused on that you think maybe distracts from this overall goal of long-term health and productivity. Well, you know, everybody has to be worried about sort of the thing that looks shiny and cool and, you know, hip or whatever. Um, not that there isn't some value there, but at the end of the day, keeping your eye right on the ball, 
Um, what I found so interesting is when I first started working with employers and we were talking about, you know, how do you measure a program success? A lot of it was is very simple as well. You know, are our employees utilizing the program like the old EAP? You know, do we have high utilization? That is such the tip of the iceberg when we think about how we how we're going to measure a, a program. I mean, you really want to think about is this going to impact productivity? Is this going to impact turnover? Is this going to impact disability rates, right? Is this going to impact presenteeism, absenteeism? Is this, uh, all the health outcome metrics that I, I had mentioned earlier, is this going to be targeted towards the populations that you need to target? So for example, when we, we talk about maybe a high-tech employer that has a lot of engineers who might live in Redwood City or Palo Alto, they're going to have very different needs from somebody in a call center, you know, in in uh, Nebraska or Idaho or wherever, right? right? So a lot of people, they may come to you and they say, we've got the greatest diabetes solution or the greatest musculoskeletal solution or the greatest maternity solution or the greatest behavioral health solution. Those are all wonderful things, but there's so many of them out there. So what is going to be the right solution given your demographics, given what you know as an employer about what's driving your costs and driving your results? What are the things that are of greatest concern to these different facets of your population, which are most likely to get the biggest bang for the buck? Mm-hmm. Not easy because there are a lot of solutions, solutions and patient is, is one of them. And it's a very compelling solution that has the promise of impacting uh, a, a lot of employees. But as JR knows, a consultant like me is going to say, how are we going to measure success and how are we going to measure success and get those metrics on the board? And once we get past procurement, how are we going to track that on a regular basis and report back to the senior leadership who I can guarantee you is going to demand a specific proven return on investment to, to move the program forward. Right, right. So it sounds like really just perhaps thoughtful pilots around some of these solutions. I was at the health conference last week and heard from two leaders of, of benefits for large companies and both had piloted caretaking solutions coming out of the pandemic. One of them found that it was a great fit and the other one found that it wasn't as great of a fit for their culture, the particular solution that they chose. And so they ran it as a pilot and then they eliminated it after that. So taking that sort of data-driven approach to finding a thoughtful match for what you think might be a lever to drive things forward in terms of productivity and health overall, and then being willing to look at those numbers at the end of the day and say, okay, did this work for us or not? Um, I think that's really interesting. That that is a great point. I had uh, forgotten how important it is to pi- to consider piloting programs in some instances, right? Um, and as you pilot a program, you start to make a decision: do we expand it to other areas? Um, I had an acronym that I created when I was back in my consulting days when we would implement a solution, and the acronym was was SEAT, S-E-A-T. And so what that meant was once we implemented a solution and maybe it was a pilot and maybe it wasn't, we do an analysis. S would say, stay the course. If everything's looking good, we stay the course. E, expand the solution. If you have a pilot and it's working well and and your employees are happy and you're achieving the results that, that you need, E, expand the solution. A was amend the direction. 
You'd look at it, you'd say, hey, this program seems to be working well, but there are some problems with it. There are some issues with it, or maybe it works for this population and it doesn't work for this population. We need to amend the solution. And then T, terminate the problem, right? If a, a solution isn't working, if it's not coming, if it's not delivering on its promise, if you find that the metrics that have been promised aren't being met, you terminate the problem. So SEAT was the acronym that I developed and the acronym that I used with my clients as we started to put pilots forward, as we started to implement new solutions, and as we started to measure them on a regular basis. I love that kind of way to evaluate. It's simple, right? Like it's a, it's a simple acronym and it's a simple way to look at it. And I just thinking through the SEAT, I imagine that really uh, A in that the amend the direction is probably one of those that's kind of the hardest thing to actually do or to convince is, is way, like is something you should do. So I'm going to take a sidestep here, Dan. And you've had lots of years being able to like oversee the the fastest changing industry probably in the entire United States in the whole tech side of things. And I imagine you have like just an amazing amount of cool stories that you could tell and experiences you've had. But, you know, as we get to the close of this podcast, I'm just curious, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to touch on? You know, I, I, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, We've talked a lot about the challenging circumstances that we find ourselves in, how it's different from from what we've seen before. To me, it's an exciting time to be in the benefit space. You know, there's so much opportunity to make a difference. There's so much opportunity to impact employees' lives. There's so much opportunity from... We haven't really touched on this, but when we think about financial wellness and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, promoting appropriate healthcare in the appropriate site at the appropriate time, and helping people in their time of need, and finding unique solutions and innovative solutions to unique circumstances, I'm retired primarily, but I still do some informal advising uh, for, for companies in Silicon Valley uh, and outside Silicon Valley. And it's it's a really exciting and energizing time to think about what we're looking at right now and look at all the possibilities that exist, not only from the standpoint of helping the organizations that we serve, but really making a difference in the lives of the employees who are impacted by these things. So I'm grateful for the opportunities that exist today. Thank you, Dan. Uh- I really well said. I mean, that's why we're all here. And I think even why you're here, even though you're transitioning into retirement, can't keep them away. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on, on the show. Um, for any listeners who want to connect with you outside of the show, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Very simple. Uh, my email address is BernsteinDan, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N-D-A-N 59 at gmail.com. So uh, I may be recently retired from Mercer, but I do enjoy engaging. So if anybody out there wants to talk about these issues, I love to do that. Feel free to reach out to me. All right. Fantastic. Well, again, I'm Laura Cave, and this has been The Patient Podcast. If uh, you'd like to share feedback or contact us directly about this episode or any other, please send an email to podcast at patient.com. That's podcast at P-A-Y-T-I-E-N-T.com. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.